Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I am the author of Manneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is the greatest novel ever written. And good news, you can get that greatest novel ever written as an audiobook, as a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. And Rob, I hear you say, why would you give us the greatest novel ever written for free? Well, esteemed audience, I am so confident that after you read the greatest novel ever written, you will want the second and third greatest novels ever written, the two sequels, and those you'll pay cash money for, so we'll be all right. Uh, if you don't have the cash money right now, no problem. You can make it up to me by subscribing on YouTube or whatever channel that you're listening to this podcast on. The show is free. Help me out. Subscribe. If you wanted to leave a review, just this show is in English. It makes it so easy for me to understand. That would be fan- fantastic. I would so appreciate it. Uh, as always, for interviews with agents, editors, everything that's good in this world, head to middlegradeninja.com. That is an exhausting amount of preamble. Let's get to it. <laughs> uh, my guest is Jessica. I'm saying this right. Jessica Vitalis. You got it. Jessica Vitalis, how are you this evening? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for, for carving out the time. I've got all kinds of questions for you. Uh, but esteemed audience knows that I never summarize anyone else's biography or anybody else's book. Uh, why would I make you sit through that <laughs> right here and you can you can do a better job of it than I can? So if you would, let's start. If uh, you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of just an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure, that sounds great. I am an MBA turned writer. I am particularly interested in dark upper grade, dark upper middle grade fantasy. I love stories that are entertaining, but also very thought provoking. I am an ad- active member of the literary community and often volunteer. I also run a program called Magic in the Middle, which is a series of free monthly recorded book talks that educators and caregivers can share with their young readers to get them interested in stories that they might not otherwise pick up. Let's see what else. I am an American expat living in Canada with my husband, an entire house full of teenagers, two very naughty cats, and one sweet dog. And my debut novel, The Wolf's Curse, comes out September 21st with Greenwillow, HarperCollins. And then I have a second book coming the following fall of 2022. And September 21st, of course, is Wink Wink Tuesday, esteemed audience. You could probably be pre-ordering your copy right now. And if you found us after Tuesday, good news. It's available at this moment. Get your copy. Uh, are you able to tell us what book, the title of book two yet, or is that still a secret for the moment? That's still a secret for the moment. Gotcha. Something to look mm-hmm. forward to. I'm imagining it's the wolf's uh, curse too. We'll just we'll go ahead and we'll confirm that now. No, it's actually so. My editor calls it a loose companion novel, and I can't say too much, but I will say that it is sort of the exact opposite of the wolf's curse, but at the same time, a perfect companion. So it's something I'm really excited about, and I cannot wait to share the details. But I can't say anything right now. I assume it's got to be a prequel since all the main characters died at the end of The Wolf's Curse, right? I'm not going to say a word. (laughs) No, it's actually set in an entirely different country with entirely different magic. But it's still kind of a companion novel. Now I'm very curious. Yeah. 
I imagine, <laughs> you know what, I'm not even going to ask the question. <laughs> I'm going to know that the answer is no. I'll ask you when we're done. <laughs> I'll, I'll an <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Um, well, you know, let's uh, let's start there because I do want to talk to you about your time in the uh, writing community and all the things. You know what? We could start anywhere. Let's start with uh, making uh, middle grade magic or middle grade magic uh, in the middle. I was watching the the show earlier today, uh, and um, I'm newly subscribed and esteemed audience who's heading to YouTube to subscribe to Middle Grade Ninja anyway. Uh, while you're there, subscribe. Tell us uh, about your channel and what you're doing there. Sure. So Magic in the Middle is just a series of free monthly recorded book talks. So I read a lot of middle grade and I figured as long as I'm reading all these books, I wanted to do something with that knowledge and particularly help young readers connect with books that they might not otherwise pick up. So every month I pick a book that I love and I just do a quick three to five minute book talk telling the audience about the book. And I record those and share them live on YouTube, or you can subscribe and have it delivered free to your inbox every month. And it's my hope that either young readers will watch the videos or teachers or caregivers or educators of any kind will share these videos with their young readers to connect them to new stories. And then uh, sometimes you, you also have the author come on and they do like a, a quick introduction at the, the start of the show as well, right? That's right. Yes. I invite the authors always to submit a video. So sometimes they talk a little bit about their book and sometimes they just share a quick behind the scenes story, something fun for the listeners that the readers may not otherwise have a chance to find out. So if a person were listening to this who happened to be a writer, I don't know if anybody would, would match that description who listens to this show. Uh, but if they're listening and thinking, man, I would love for you to be interested in my book. I would be happy to record an intro, anything you need. How would they get in touch with you or should they uh, get in touch with you? You know, actually right now, because my time is so limited and because I'm so passionate about this project, I hand select books that I have read that I'm particularly passionate about. So I'm not taking solicitations right now. That may change at some point in the future, but for right now, that's how I'm starting out. Fair enough. Well, subscribe to Steamed Audience. Get in there, get the uh, the listen count way up, uh, and then she will have no choice but to, she'll, she'll run out of books. Uh, and then <laughs> you'll, you'll have that's right. I'll have to do them all. <laughs> um, let's start with uh, give uh, Steamed Audience kind of. I promise never to summarize your book. Uh, so give uh, Steamed Audience kind of an overview of what they need to know about Wolf's Curse, which is either available now or available for pre-order, depending on when they're watching or listening. Sure. So The Wolf's Curse is about a 12-year-old boy by the name of Gage whose life is cursed when he discovers a great white wolf stealing his grandpapa's soul, preventing it from reaching the sea and the sky and sailing into eternity. Now, when the superstitious residents of his village catch him, they accuse him of crying wolf, and he ends up joining forces with another orphan by the name of Rue. And together, the two of them navigate their shared grief, and they end up on a journey that reveals really life-changing truths about the wolf, but also about the nature of death itself. The story is navigated by the omniscient wolf that you mentioned, and it has a voice maybe similar to Lemony Snicket, but more of a literary writing style. So it's been compared to A Wish in the Dark or The Girl Who Drank the Moon. And so where you were starting to tell us the, the story of where the idea for this came from initially. 
Yeah, so I had written five books before this story, and I was actually talking to a girlfriend over tea, and she said to me, you know, you have the skill set to write books. Why don't you write something that will actually sell? And I thought, what a great idea. Why don't I do that? <laughs> so I went home and I was standing in front of my bookshelf and I was just searching for inspiration and a beloved copy of the book thief jumped out at me. And for those of you who have never read it, this is a brilliant story set in Nazi Germany about a young girl who's sent to live with a foster family. But what really stands out about the story is the fact that it's narrated by death. And I had read that story many times, but at that particular moment when I was looking for inspiration, I thought that is just so brilliant. And what would that story look like if I told it? Because I can't write a story set in Nazi Germany. Number one, it's already been done. And number two, I don't want to do that. So if I take that same narrator, what would a middle grade story look like? And that's where the idea for The Wolf's Curse came from. So it all came from this idea of wanting to explore what death would look like as a narrator. And well, I don't, I never know, this is why I have other people talk about their books. I never know if it's a spoiler. There is a rather dramatic death in the first chapter, which is technically, I think, the, almost the inciting incident. So I Correct. think it's okay to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, how do you open a, a, a story with a death like that intended for younger readers? And, and how do you go about discussing a subject as, as dramatic uh, as death with younger readers? That's a great question. So in the first draft of The Wolf's Curse, when I first got this idea, I was so excited when it was time to sit down and start writing that I just sat down and pounded out a story in 30 days without doing any sort of pre-writing, without having any idea what it was going to be about. I just sat down and wrote to see what would come out. And I sent it off to a beloved reader and she said, you know, the writing's beautiful, but the story isn't about death. Like there's no death in your story. It was sort of all this wandering around. And I kind of meant for it to be like a humorous, funny adventure story. And maybe death would be trying to trick somebody into taking her job. So that's the vibe I was going for. And she's like, well, that just doesn't work. That's not the heart of the story. So I threw that story out completely and started over with a blank page. And I thought, unfortunately, she's right. I may not want to write about death, but if you're going to have death as a narrator, you probably need to have death in your story. And so I figured I would just hit it dead on and no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, I'm not sure. But in any case, I thought, you know, I'm just gonna need to jump in with a death. So I started with the wolf and the wolf was walking down the street. And then I saw him meet this boy that I discovered was going to be my main character. And then of course the old man. And it just became very clear to me right away that the first thing that I needed to do was kill off the old man so that I could really grapple with this idea of grief and loss and what it means for a young person to suffer that kind of loss. And in terms of how to pull that off, it was really important to me that I offered the reader a look into their relationship so that they would feel what Gage was feeling when the old man died. And it was also really important to me to be really authentic about it. So my husband's father had died several years earlier and I was privileged to do his hospice care and I was at his side when he died. So I had been through that very personal experience. And that's something that I really wanted to show on the page because we never know when a young person is going to experience that level of trauma. And I just thought that was something that hadn't been done before. 
So again, I wanted to hit it head on. I wanted to be really honest about the experience. And then I wanted to move on and really get into what the healing and the moving on process looks like after you experience a trauma like that. Uh, something else that you do right there uh, at the beginning, or rather the, the narrator does, um, uh, right there at the, at the start, is he, uh, right in the opening note, tells the um, uh, reader that um, that uh, you'd rather walk away, that they'd rather the reader walk away now. And I thought, oh, that's that's either an extremely confident move or an extremely <laughs> move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that the wolf's voice just being kind of snarky was the first thing that came to me when I wrote this version of the story. And so when the wolf first said that, I thought the same thing. I thought, well, that's very interesting. I don't know if I'll be able to keep it. But then when almost the first thing that happens is we encounter a very intense death, I'm like, well, that works perfectly. I have warned people that you may want to walk away now. So it felt like it worked for the story. Yeah, you can't be held accountable. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been warned, readers. <laughs> uh, and then um, I know that it was uh, what the, wasn't until your second full draft that you decided that the wolf needed to be an omniscient narrator. But I have that I, time, right? I think maybe the wolf was somewhat omniscient in the first story, but it wasn't something I was really caught cognizant of. In fact, I'm not even sure if I really completely knew the wolf was omniscient when I was writing the second draft, because I remember a point I was either going back through my revisions or I was in the middle of writing it and I was like, oh my goodness, how does the wolf know what he's thinking? Oh no, I'm writing an omniscient narrator. <laughs> because that's always a little bit terrifying, especially as an unpublished author, you're told, you know, kind of stay away from the omniscient. It's really, really hard to write. And that's true because you can be accused of head hopping. It can be really hard to, um, to, to close that distance between the reader and the character on the page. If you're using an omniscient narrator, you don't always feel as close to the character as you want to. So I knew it was a really risky move, but the thing was I was having so much fun writing the wolf's voice that I didn't care. I thought even if this story doesn't go anywhere, none of my previous five stories went anywhere, that's fine. I need to write this story because I'm really having fun with it. Um, what, uh... How, how did you um, try to overcome that uh, overcome that risk and, and make sure you mitigated the the potential fallout of having um, uh, a, a perspective that's a bit removed from your main character? I did a lot of research, so I read a lot of other books, anything I could get my hands on middle grade with omniscient narrators, and I just studied how they did it. I read a lot of blogs, honestly, just spent a lot of time on the web listening to how people thought about omniscient narrators. So very often in middle grade, it's not done. And when you do do it, like I did, where you're sort of constantly dipping into a close third person, you're very often accused of head hopping and middle grade readers don't tend to like that. Whereas if you move into some adult genres, that's very common, it's expected. So I thought, well, it might not always be done, but if I can be really careful how I do it, maybe I can make it work. And so what I really focused on was making sure when I was going to move from the wolf's perspective to the main character's perspective, or sometimes even to other perspectives, I made sure to really try to signal it clearly so that the reader wasn't confused, that they would know, okay, now we're in Gage's head. Now we're going to hear more about Gage. So that's how I how I managed it, and I think it worked out okay. Well, I mean, 
We can't know for sure, but it is coming out. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Not already out of Steam audience. So well, you know, it's, it's worked so far. It's interesting because when my editor first purchased the book, she said, I'm going to go back and do a read now and write up your edit letter. Is there anything you'd like me to keep an eye on? And so that was the only concern I shared with her. Am I doing any head hopping? And she didn't even address that in the edit letter at all. So I feel pretty confident that at least from her perspective, it seemed to be working. And so um, with the world building, I know that you settled on a, a French inspired seaside setting. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, how much research do you have to do for that? And also how do you use that setting to deepen some of the themes of your book? The setting was really fun. So first of all, when I was in high school, I was studied in Germany for a year. So I had spent a year in a very small seaside village on the northern coast of Germany. And I always had that in the back of my head that I wanted to do a seaside setting in a book, but the right story had never come along. So after I did that first draft that I threw out, that first draft was a very vague European sort of Renaissance setting without any detail. And one of the things that I knew I needed to do in the second draft was to really uh, focus on the setting and make the setting come alive. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a seaside setting. But at the same time, I had just got back from a vacation in France and I was absolutely obsessed with France and I got to visit Normandy and the beaches there had such an impact on me. So I kind of just merged the two and I thought I'm going to use my seaside setting, but I'm going to do it in France because that's where my passion is right now. And once I figured that out, everything else sort of clicked for the setting because I started to think about how I wanted to have a really unique death mythology. So I put myself back, you know, several hundred years ago and thought, if I'm sitting in a seaside village and I don't have any of the data and technology we have about how the world works and what's out there, what am I going to think about the world around me? What am I going to think the stars are up in the sky? And so immediately I thought, well, of course, they're going to think that their lanterns live by their loved ones. And of course, they're going to think their loved ones were going to be off sailing in the sea and the sky, because if you stand and look at the ocean, it can very often look much like the sky and you can't quite tell where the line is. So to me, that was sort of a logical jump that people would have made that when their loved ones died, they sailed up to the sea and the sky, lit the lanterns that they could see in the nighttime sky and then sailed off into eternity. So from there, I was just able to build on the mythology of what would it take to get up to the sea and the sky and what kind of supplies would they need? And all of that filled out the world building for me. Um, makes sense. Um, and then I'm, well, I was gonna ask you about that sequel again, and that's, that's just a <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I don't think there's going to be a sequel. I think as I love this role, but I might be done with it. The companion, yeah, yeah. Uh, instead of the, uh, the the question you can't answer that I was going to ask, let me ask you this: uh, You said elsewhere that you're acutely aware of the imbalances, and I'm quoting you, so let me get this right. You're mm -hmm. acutely aware of the imbalances that exist in our society on both a personal and a societal level. It is my hope that by exploring these themes in my books, middle grade readers can learn to recognize injustice and inequality, which may help those experiencing it on a personal level and potentially readers to eventually become a part of the solution. So 
how do you explore those themes without, you know, writing an essay rather than a fictional story? Uh, and then how are you hoping to see that the, your readers becoming a part of the solution manifest? What reader, what can readers do after they've, they've read your, your, your fiction to, to make that better future? Sure. Well, it's interesting. I told you that I threw out the first draft and I wrote a second draft of this book. When I wrote that second draft, I sent it back to my same reader and she read it again and said, the first half is perfect. You absolutely nailed it. The second half doesn't really work because you go all political. And the entire second half of the book turned into this political thing about getting this man who was abusing power. I don't want to go into too much detail and spoil things, but there is a man named Lord Mayor Volpine who definitely abuses his power in this story. And so I really veered away from exploring death and grief in that version of the story and sort of was working on getting him out of office. And that didn't really work for the story, although it felt very good for my heart. And so I threw out that second half again, and I rewrote the story again, and I focused it much more cleanly on death and grief. But because that's something that's really important to me and tends to show up in my work, I still wanted readers to see that in this society, there was an abuse of power going on, and there were the haves and the have-nots. And it's my hope by showing that that readers can become aware of the fact that this exists. It's also my hope that young readers who are living lives where there is an imbalance of power, whether it's because they are poor or it's because they are in a traumatic situation where somebody is controlling their life in an uncomfortable way. Very often as children, we feel very powerless when that happens. And so I wanted to give them an example of a story where that is happening in another society so that they feel that they're not alone. But then I also wanted to show them that there are people who see that and who are working against it and change may not happen right away, but change can be made in increments over time. And as you grow up, you do gain more power and the ability to make changes and make choices that will impact change. So it's some of those themes that aren't necessarily tackled directly in my story, but I hope that readers who are looking for them can find them and maybe perhaps, you know, if they go back and reword reread the story when they're older, or if they're rereading it with adults in their life, they can start to pick apart some of those more minor themes in the story. And you wrote the first draft in what, about a month initially? Mm -hmm. Yep. And when, when was that approximately? 2019. So that would have been May of 2019. I wrote the first draft and then June or July of 2019. I wrote the second draft and then I spent about six months rewriting that second half. I sent it to some more beta readers, picked things apart, did a little bit of revision and then started querying in the early part of 2020. Gotcha. Just curious about yep. uh, fear of wealthy people abusing their power and politicians run amok. So I just wonder, uh, what, what it's, about <laughs> Yes, it's, it's possible that there's an awful lot of my own personal feelings written in, but at the same time, I, I don't want to make it out that this story is about politics or that it's only appropriate if you have a, a particular political view, because that's not the case at all. I think everybody has the right to their own political views. It's just something that was brewing inside of me and that I wanted to explore on the page. I would like to think that everybody who's not currently using the money that's not going to feeding kids or providing health care to travel to space, everybody that's not doing that would agree that there's an imbalance of wealth and we maybe need to do something about it. I, I would hope that that's not a tremendously political statement. 
I hope so too. I hope so too. But if the last couple of years has taught me anything, it's that it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. Well, I want to talk uh, more about your your process, and I want to go back and I want to learn about that that PhD that you you got. But before we move on here from the the Wolf's Curse, I always try to do this show as, a, as I imagine if I were going to be on on a show and be interviewed, what would I hope? The, the guest might ask me, or I'm sorry, the host might ask me, um, that, that, would, that would set me up. But I always would like to have kind of a blank spot available so that if there's a question that I haven't asked, something that you about this book that you'd like to talk about, this is that spot. What's a question that you wish I or somebody else would have asked you about this book? You know, I think one thing that's really important to communicate about this book, we've been talking a lot about death and grief, and it's definitely a twist on the Grim Reaper mythology, but I don't want that to scare readers away. I definitely tackle that head on, but at the same time, this story is really a lot of fun. There's a snarky wolf, it's fast paced, there's a lot of adventure. So if you have a reader that's not quite ready for the deeper themes, I think there's also space for a younger reader to appreciate this story because I think that um, they'll take from the story what they need and want from it. And then the readers who are older and more mature and looking for the darker, heavier themes will also find that in the pages of the story. The wolf is, is very funny at times. Uh, lots of lots of amusing, snarky um, uh, observations throughout. Mm-hmm. When did you or how did you how did you decide when it was appropriate for a bit of snark and for a, a good laugh to undercut some of that seriousness without completely undercutting the themes that you're going for, without taking away from the seriousness of death? How, how did you find that balance? That balance came very organically for me. The wolf's voice really drove this story. I pretty much just felt like I was channeling what the wolf had to say. So on the first draft, I just let it all out. There was some going back and saying, okay, that's maybe not quite appropriate here. There were a few times where I moved things around. So some of what she had to say came later in the story, but it pretty much is all on the page like it came out in that initial draft as far as the wolf's voice is concerned. Uh, so okay, um, let's let's talk about how we get to here because you, you go and you get your MBA from Columbia. I'm assuming that that is not in anticipation of becoming uh, a little bit, <laughs> although I could be wrong. <laughs> You are absolutely correct, although it is because of my MBA that I became an author. Interestingly enough, I took a course in business school called Creativity and Personal Mastery, and it was given by a wonderful professor by the name of Shriki Mar Rao, and he has a book out that I definitely recommend if you're interested in sort of creativity and personal mastery. But in any case, he was offering this very non-traditional course in the marketing program. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of cool. I think I'm going to go ahead and just see what he has to say. So I took the course and it was filled with all sorts of interesting exercises. One of the exercises was that we had to design our ideal career. Now, for most people in business school, you go into business school sort of knowing what your career trajectory is probably going to be. You sort of go into banking, you go into business. There's pretty defined paths. I wasn't so sure any of those paths were going to be exactly right for me. And when I started doing this exercise, I started thinking about the traditional paths of, well, maybe I'd like to be a consultant. But we had to write down what your exact day would look like. You had to literally design a schedule for yourself, who you would be talking to, what you would be doing throughout the day. And no matter what I did, I realized that all I really wanted to be doing was writing stories. So 
I designed my ideal career as a children's book author. And then I finished that class and I graduated and my father, my husband's father that I talked about earlier got ill. And that's the time when I had the chance to do hospice care for him. And we eventually started a family. And so I really was able to set aside my business career that I had already sort of realized maybe wasn't going to be as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. And I was able to pivot. I was very, very fortunate. And that's, again, talking about the privilege that I talk about a lot. I realized that not many people have that privilege where I can just say, I'm going to set aside this very expensive MBA and I'm going to go pursue this path of becoming a published author, even though I will probably never make any money at it or be able to support myself at it. But I did that. I decided to just start writing and see where it took me. So that's how I got into writing. And I wrote, as I said, six books over the course of 13 years. I got my first agent after the third book. And we queried that third book, as well as a fourth and fifth book over the course of, I can't remember now, but I think it was something like five years. And it was, again, in early 2020 that I was had just finished writing The Wolf's Curse. I had a feeling there was something special about it, or at least it was special to me. I knew that this book was different than anything I'd written before. So my agent and I had a real heart to heart, and I adored my first agent. We had a fantastic working relationship, but we both agreed for whatever reason it's not working, whether we're just hitting the wrong editors, whether she's not giving me the editorial guidance I needed, we just didn't know what was going on, but we decided it was time to part ways and for me to start fresh with this sixth book. So that's where the real magic in my story happens, the Cinderella story you talked about, because I had been practicing craft for 13 years at that point. I had been doing nothing but reading and writing. And um, I was introduced to a Newbery author by the name of Erin Entrada Kelly, who I believe you just had on the show recently, if I'm not mistaken. Back if esteemed audience wanted to enjoy that episode, it's episode 125. Check the back catalog, well worth your time. Yep, for sure. Um, so Erin was a Pitch Wars mentor, which was a program that I had started mentoring as soon as I got my first agent because I wanted to give back to the literary community. Again, I had studied craft for so long and I wanted to be able to share that with people who didn't have the same level of pri privilege that I did. So I mentored through Pitch Wars and Erin posted something on one of the mentor boards and she said, um, I am teaching a class, I think it was at UCLA, and she said, I'm looking for the opening five pages of, of stories to share with my class, and I'll have them critique the stories, and I'll share my critique. So if anybody wants to share, please send me your work. Well, of course, this was an opportunity I was not going to pass up. So I very quickly sent her my pages, and I didn't hear anything from her for a few weeks. And then one Saturday night, I got a direct message on Facebook from her, and she just said, I'm obsessed with this story. And at that point, I pretty much died a happy death and my life could have ended and I would have been just fine because Erin and Travis Kelly loved my story. But um, of course, I thanked her and she said, I'm going to teach it tomorrow. And I said, well, I'm really glad to hear you like it. And the next day she said, you know, my class really didn't have any feedback. I ended up using this as a text of, of really perfect writing and, and how you can do things right. And at that point, I was really on the floor and I said, you know, this just is giving me so much hope. I'm getting ready to query and I just really appreciate it. And she said, well, send me your novel and I'll take a look and maybe I'll pass it on to my agent. Of course, I did that. And I had been in this industry a lot of years, as I mentioned, and I didn't expect anything to come of that because what are the odds that she would like my entire book enough to share it with her agent? What are the odds that her agent would like the book enough to make an offer? 
not very high. Well, that was at about noon on Sunday, and I woke up Monday morning to a message from Aaron saying, my agent loves your book and wants to set up the call. So within 24 hours, Sarah Crow, Aaron, Aaron and Trotta Kelly took care of it for you. She took care of it for me. So yes, I call her my literary godmother. So I very much had a Cinderella story in terms of, you know, writing for 13 years, doing all the hard work, like you said, to learn the craft. And then I had a little bit of luck and good fortune and my literary godmother swooped in and took care of the rest for me. Fantastic. And I hear that that is pretty much standard for Erin and Trotta Kelly. Uh, so, Steve Doggins, if you too would like to experience this, just go to her website, uh, follow <laughs> her on Twitter. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure she's happy to provide that. <laughs> Seriously, she is a fantastic person, though, and her stories are so, so beautiful. So, in terms of doing the work, I often recommend that people study her stories. And that's one of the things that I very often do is take my favorite authors and I retype chapters from their books because that teaches me how they do things. And as I'm retyping it, I think how I would have done it. And that way I can learn, well, why did they make that choice? And if I was going to make a different choice, why would I make that different choice? And I think when you really think about work on a granular level like that, there's really a lot to be learned. So Erin's books, particularly because she writes from different points of views often, she's just a fantastic master to learn from. I've done that with uh, with a few authors as well. Um, other than Aaron and Trotta Kelly, who we obviously agree is one of the one of our greatest living authors, and everyone don't don't contact her. Uh, but, but do read her books, and if you want to retype some of the chapters, that probably will provide you some some direct instruction. Other than her, mm -hmm. uh, who are some of the authors whose books you would uh, retype? For sure, Kate DiCamillo, because one of the things that I struggled with in my craft journey is emotion and character development. So plot has always come very naturally for me. I have a very linear brain and I really like knowing that you have to get from A to B and I like coming up with the way to get there. When it comes to digging those messier emotions and characters, that's really hard for me. So authors like Kate DiCamillo that are just really masters of the emotional journey were really important. Other authors that I love, um, Tahara Mafi. I think if you're interested in literary writing, she has such a beautiful way with description that I really love typing out her chapters. And then I often take a color coding system and I go through those type chapters and I might do yellow for plot and I might do green for emotion and I might do red for setting and I just color code the chapters so that I can visually see how her work flows and how she manages to weave in all of the different details in such a seamless way to arrive at such a richly imagined world. And this is part of what you're doing I imagine over those 13 years before your overnight success? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Other uh, other than that, what uh, what does your day look like uh, for those 13 years? Are you working um, also or are you focused on caregiving and taking care of your children? What does your, what does your life look like as you're getting this PhD? It changed quite a bit over time. So when I first started writing, I had a brand new baby at home and a three-year-old. So my writing was very limited to nap time and after they went to bed. So it was really just you know, a half hour, an hour here and there. When the youngest one turned one, I did a babysitting exchange. So I watched somebody else's child a day a week and they watched my child a day a week. And so I had a dedicated maybe six hours to write. So until the youngest reached kindergarten and started school, it was sort of just squeaking and writing time 
anywhere I could find the chance. And then when they started school, I decided to take it more seriously. Not that I wasn't taking it seriously before, but I decided to treat it more like a career. So when they were at school, those were my working hours. And I tried really hard to stick to that for the most part. Now, during that time, we moved from Wisconsin to Georgia, and then we ended up moving from Georgia to Canada. So there was also moving going on and all sorts of other things. So I've never been too hard on myself in terms of it has to be nine to five every single day. But I am very committed to my writing. And so I do try to sit down as often as I can and and work on craft and stories. If I'm stuck, I don't feel like I have to sit at the computer. I often take two or three months off if I'm stuck or if life has just gotten too overwhelming. But it's always getting back to the idea that this is my career and something I want to take seriously. Well, you mentioned um, that when you when you when you got started, you said, OK, I'm going to go be a children's author. You had already decided up front, uh, ironically, since uh, we, we all know that you're now independently wealthy. <laughs> that. Uh, but you had decided this is not going to be a field of, of, of money. I'm not going to make money from this. This is going to be something for my heart. So mm -hmm. how does that change your approach to writing or does it? How did that change my approach to writing early on or how does it change now that I have a book deal? Well, no, or, or early on when there's no book deal, no reason to think that something is improbable as Aaron and <laughs> Kelly is going to say, my God, send me your pages and let me let me, mm -hmm. let me get up with uh, my agent, the, one of the most amazing agents uh, that could possibly be around. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for goodness sakes, not only does she represent both uh, these fine women, but Jason Reynolds, I think, is one of her clients. And I, I and Johnson. Yes, I think Kathy Appel's in there now, too, maybe. At Pippin. I don't think she's Sarah's, but certainly she's a powerhouse agent for sure. Yeah. You know, the problem is Steve audience knows this. I talk to so many different literary agents and, and I try to memorize everybody's resume. <laughs> kind of blurs together. Right. A little. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so but, but, but when that's so far off out of the realm of possibility that, that, that that's ever going to happen and you're you're accepting that this is just going to be this is something I do for love. Does that impact the way you approach writing? And then if I'm not loving it today, don't worry about it. Or is it OK, I'm not writing for three months because I've stepped away from the project. But during those three months, I'm still learning craft. I'm typing somebody else's book. How does that impact yeah. your approach? Yeah, so. I wouldn't necessarily say that my goal was never to become a published author or that I knew it would never happen. My goal, I am a very driven person and I'm extremely tenacious, which I think is evidenced by the fact that I kept going for 13 years. So I wrote because it was a labor of love. I knew that it might never happen, but I also knew that I would never give up. So I always figured if I never gave up, someday it might happen. So there was always that goal in mind, but I've always had conversations and I've been very lucky to surround myself by very thoughtful women who help keep me grounded and mindful of the fact that getting a publishing deal doesn't necessarily change anything in the real world. I still have to clean my toilets every day. Um, my, my life still looks pretty much exactly the same. So we all have this idea of, oh, I will be successful or I will be happy if I can get a publishing deal. And it is true that, that there's something that happens in your heart when you get a publishing deal, especially after having worked for it for 13 years. But 
I really tried to hold on to the journey and the fact that I was in a position of privilege where I could do something that I loved so much each and every day. So for me, it wasn't a matter of, I say that I treated it like a career, but it wasn't so much a matter of, oh gosh, I have to go to the office and sit at my desk and work. It was, I love doing this. I get to sit down at my desk. My kids are off at school now. I get this chance to sit and do what I love, to find a combination of words that is just so cool or that perfectly communicates what I want to communicate. So for me, it's never felt like work. It's always been a labor of love. And, and just as much I love doing the hard work of analyzing the other books and uh, mentoring other writers and talking about craft. So for me, it's all just joy. And the fact that I have this book deal means a lot to me because it took so long. But again, nothing has really changed in my life. I still try to bring the same joy to my work and, and um, my process has stayed essentially the same. What if, and this is a this is an absurd question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, sure. What if I could, and why would I do this? But what if I could tell you for certain, this is it. This is the peak. You you get this book, you get the next book, and then that's it. You're not publishing anything else. Um, but you can write as much as you want for the rest of your life. Do you still do it? Yes, absolutely. Um, Part of the reason I do it is because it's such great fun to look back at where I started. When I look back at that original memoir, that agent was absolutely right. I had no idea how to write a story. And when I look at where I am now, I take tremendous satisfaction in that growth. And it's entirely possible that my future books won't sell, but I will continue to improve as a writer and I can't control the market and I can't control what publishing does, but I can continue to improve on my craft and to write stories that are meaningful to me. And who knows if traditional publishing didn't work out, there are other avenues I could consider independent publishing, self-publishing. Um, I don't think there's any one path that anybody has to follow. So I am really, really happy and I feel fortunate for where I am right now, but I also know that my future happiness and success isn't going to be defined by the next book deal. I had almost forgotten about that scumbag agent. I certainly wanted to uh, <laughs> circle back and talk a little bit about him. Uh, obviously, we, we would never reveal the name of, of, of such an agent. Uh, is that agent still in the industry now or has he moved on to something else? So he's still out there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. For any agent who, who might be listening, for, for all I know, he's listening. Um, and a, a message like that, 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 that flat out, he's taking time out of his day to tell you, you can't write. And it's too bad because it sounded like such a promising story. Ah, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> does that inspire you or does that crush you at the time? For any agents who might be listening, like, oh, I, I could make a future Jessica Vitalis. I'll send that nasty email. Was that helpful? I'm going to say this, for 99% of the people out there, I suspect it would be soul crushing. I had already decided that I was going to become an author in whatever shape or form that unfolded. And so, yeah, it was crushing to have somebody tell you that this novel you had written was really, really bad. But when I sort of sat down and looked at what he actually said, I was like, yeah, he's probably right. I really don't know what a scene is or how to write a scene. So to me, that was just incentive to learn how to do it. I'm going to assume that he had just gotten word that day of a terrible illness impacting someone he loved and was looking to lash out at the world and, 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 and the rest of his life, he would never do anything like that again. Well, 
Maybe, could be. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> you know what? I'm grateful for the feedback, though. Certainly it could have been framed differently, but it worked for me. I took it and I went, okay, he's right. I don't know what I'm doing. And so at that time, I decided to read every single Newbery winner, every Newbery medalist and honor winner as far back as I could. So I think I read back 20 or 30 years and that was sort of the start of my PhD. And had he not told me, you really don't know what you're doing, I might never have delved into literature on the level that I needed to in order to really learn the craft of writing. So I think that he did me a, a service in a very, um, you know, unprofessional way. Fair enough. Uh, but for any literary agents listening who are thinking about doing something similar, you know, watch yourselves. This is the age of social media. Not everybody's going to exercise the same discretion as Jessica Vitalis. <laughs> well, and I would say, too, for so many people, I have a very thick skin. Again, I'm very tenacious. There are people out there who can't bear even the slightest bit of criticism and that it really crushes their soul and they're so filled with self-doubt that they do turn away from writing. And that breaks my heart because those people could go on to become beautiful writers. So I would say to the agents out there, if you have feedback, try to frame it in such a way that gives people some little glimmer of hope at least. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, putting in this work, and then I want to talk about this this tremendous contract that's uh, very very publicly available. Uh, we can we can talk about about where you get to, but first let's talk about the putting in the time and the work because you were volunteering with We Need Diverse Books and Pitch Wars. Mm -hmm. uh, for esteemed audience who might not be familiar, which if they listen to this show, they're probably familiar. Uh, but if you would give give esteemed audience kind of an overview of both of those programs and what did volunteering for them do for your career and what did it teach you about writing? Sure. So We Need Diverse Books is a tremendous program that's out there. It's a nonprofit program that is dedicated to helping uh, diverse writers get their work out into the world. And so when I first got my literary agent was was right around the time that that program started. And so as soon as I heard about it, I thought, again, I have a lot of privilege. This is something that I can do to help shorten other people's journeys to help make the world a better place. So I volunteered to read their grants. So when people submit their writing to win their grants, I was doing the sort of preliminary read throughs and helping decide what got passed on to the judges who would actually do the reading and judging. And then Pitch Wars was a program, well, it's still in effect. Pitch Wars is a program that takes, I think, around 100 mentors a year. And anybody can apply, anybody who is not agented or published and has a finished manuscript can submit their manuscript once a year and apply to get a mentor. So I applied to that program. I don't remember what year it was, but I do remember that I applied the first year I heard about it. It was maybe 2013, I wanna say. And I applied in August and I eagerly waited for the list to come out. I had a few requests from mentors for my manuscript. So I thought maybe I would be chosen and finally I would have a mentor in the industry, somebody who could tell me what I was doing wrong in my writing and how to make it better. And when the list got posted, my name was not on it. But I had just started 
I hadn't started querying. I had just participated in a program called Right on Con, which is another conference that I recommend all of your listeners look into. At the time, it was free. Now I think it's maybe $15 or $20. It's an online conference that is fantastic. You can go there and you can upload samples of your opening pages and your queries, and you can get feedback from all sorts of people and work to improve it. So I had done that, and a few agents had reached out to me and said, I saw your work on Right on Con. I saw the comments you were offering other people. I'm really interested. Send me your story. I had done that before I started querying, and the day after the Pitch Wars announcements went live and I saw that I did not get into Pitch Wars, I got a call from my very first agent saying that she would like to represent me. So um, the first thing I did after that happened is I emailed Pitch Wars and I said, I would love to mentor because I had been on this long at that point, it was a five or six year journey. And again, I had been self-taught and I was desperate for somebody to help me bring my work to the next level. And I thought if I can use anything I've learned to help somebody else's journey, that's something that I want to do. So I mentored Pitch Wars for five or six years. I can't remember now. Um, over the course of the several years, I would say Pitch Wars was amazing because when you're reading 100 plus queries, you get a real feel for number one, how to write a query, what's important in the query, but also you request stories and you're reading a lot of stories. And so you have to develop the ability very quickly to see what works and what doesn't, what engages people and what doesn't. So even my agent commented the first year that I mentored, she's like, I can see an immediate improvement in your writing because it just forces you to level up your craft so much to be able to help other people. So I really credit Pitch Wars for my evolution as a writer. And then of course, introducing me to Aaron and Trotta Kelly. Sure, that was a that was a difference maker. <laughs> so okay, uh, you level up your craft, you put in the hard work, uh, and then your your ship comes in. So let's talk about Sarah Crow goes to bat for yes. you. She gets you yes. uh, this uh, this wonderful deal that uh, in, in for esteemed audience, I, I ask your permission up front before we start talking about it. Although this is, I believe, I, I found part of this on your your website. You get a six figure two book deal for your debut novel. Every everybody's dream, right? I mean that's that's about as good as it gets. Absolutely. So what where are you when you get that news? What what is that day like? Sure. Well, actually, I'm going to back up just a little bit. What happened was Sarah made me an offer. I signed with Sarah. We did a very light round of edits before we went out on submission, just a few tweaks to the novel. And then she shared with me her submission list and went out on submission. But remember, I had been out on submission for six plus years prior to that. So this was not a huge deal to me. Like I was excited about Sarah, of course, but I was expecting at least two or three months before I heard anything at all from her. So I went back to doing what I usually do, which is writing and working on stories. So I was sitting at my desk about a week to a week and a half after we went out on submission. And I got an email from Sarah that said, there's an editor who's interested in your book and she wants to know what else you're working on. And I had just two very short paragraphs about my other two books that I was working on at the time. And so Sarah sent those off to the editor and I thought, okay, well, that's, that's really exciting. That's encouraging. Wow, that was fast. Put it out of my mind, went back to work. A week later, I got an email from Sarah. Again, I was sitting at my desk in my, I'd like to say sweatpants. I was probably in pajamas. 
pajama sweatpants. I was sitting at my desk and an email flashed across my screen that said an offer and it was from Sarah. And so I opened up my email and she had just literally forwarded the author the offer from my editor and her note was just, can we talk? <laughs> and so I started screaming. I read the offer and I started screaming and my teenage daughter was just outside my office. And so she came running in and I was like ugly crying, sobbing. And so she turned on the camera and started clicking photos and I was screaming and I quick emailed Sarah back and said, yes, but I need to finish ugly crying first. So my other teenage daughter ran in and the three of us were jumping up and down and screaming and crying. And I was hysterically reading this email out loud because I didn't know at first that it was a two book deal. So first I saw that I got an offer and then I saw that it was a two book deal. And then I saw that it was a really, really good offer. So I was just absolutely hysterical. Finally calmed down, got on the phone with Sarah. Um, I should say the offer was from Green Willow Books, Martha at Green Willow Books. And Green Willow is an imprint that publishes the most beautiful literary stories. They are an imprint that I have admired my entire career. When I used to go into bookstores, I would pick up their books and just, you know, hold the books and dream of being a Green Willow author. So getting an offer from them was just truly a dream come true. And, you know, certainly I, I wouldn't have admitted this to Martha at the time, but I would have just accepted the offer on the spot because I was so thrilled. And Sarah said, well, you know, I think that they would be a really good fit for you. Let's go back and see if they'll put just a little bit more money on the table and do a preempt um, so that we don't have to go to auction. This was in early May of 2020. So we were in the first month to two months of COVID. Nobody knew what the world was like. Nobody knew what publishing was going to do. Sarah and I did not want to get in a position of looking like we were, you know, being greedy and trying to go for more money. Like that's not what it was about. I was already really happy with the offer. So I said, you know, Sarah, just go work your magic, make whatever decisions you want to make, talk to the editors, let me know. I love Martha. I love Green Willow. I'm in. I love this offer. So she called me back the next day and she said, yeah, well, I talked to them and they're, they, you know, they really, really, really want your book. And so they've doubled the offer. And at that point, I pretty much just dropped to the phone because as I said, I would have accepted the previous offer, which I really hope my editor is not listening to this. But um, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Martha. Um, so that was it. I said, I'm done. I'm done. This, she said, you know, we, we could still go to auction. And I said, really, I'm done. Green Willow is the perfect home for me. So, um, so that was it. She accepted the offer and then it was maybe another two or three months before the contract came in. So you always hear that things are really slow and that's really, really true. It truly was at least June. In fact, I think it might have been July even before I was able to announce. So it takes a really long time. And, and I didn't know anything about the contract process. Sarah took care of all of that. Like she's just an absolute wizard. So she sent me the contract and said, it's ready to go. And I said, great, and signed on the dotted line. And then we were able to announce. So. That's sort of how it all unfolded. It was it was magical, though I have to say it was really incredible. May to July, and you're you're shaking, wanting to tell everybody that you could ever do <laughs> Like let me yeah. let me hop on Facebook and tell everyone I went to high school with. Guess what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah. 
so during that time, plus, you know, the world's uh, kind of sort of falling apart. Um, so plenty of reason already to be to be anxious, to be wondering, well, how is all of this impacting publishing? How is this impacting my contract? What does that two months look for you? Is that a time look like for you? Is that a time of great turmoil? Or do you know that Sarah Crow has got this? You focus on your writing or a little bit of both? I mean, certainly it was a time of great turmoil for everybody. My anxiety was sky high. I had a lot of trouble focusing. Fortunately, I didn't have an edit letter yet, so I didn't have to be doing any work on The Wolf's Curse. But I did know that I had a two-book deal, and the second book was unspecified. So I had quite a lot of anxiety about what that would look like. So at that time, I really buckled down and tried to flesh out this second book idea and what that might look like. It wasn't easy. That book took me, well, really up until now to write, but that book took me a full year to write, which normally I write my first drafts in a month or two. So so certainly COVID slowed down my writing process and my ability to focus a lot. But I just did my best to let Sarah do her thing and focus on the next book because after having written for 13 years, I know that's that's all you can do. At the end of the day, all you can do is focus on your next book. Uh, and so... When you have a, an unspecified second book like that, that you know as, as terms of accepting the offer originally, and I'm assuming somewhere in there you got paid, um, uh, once that happens, you know that second book has to happen. What does that look like? Do you go back to the trunk and say, hey, I wrote six other books. Are any of those good here? Or do you do you write uh, full ideas for pitches and see, see where uh, Sarah and Martha are on them before you start writing? Or do you just write the book of your heart and hope it works out? How, how, how do you navigate that? Well, I had another book that was a little over half written that I really, really loved. And that was one of the, remember I told you I had sent the two paragraphs off to the editor. And I figured since she made a two book de offer based on one of those two paragraphs, she would probably want one of those two books. So I just worked on fleshing out both of those ideas. One of them was a half written book. So I worked on polishing that a little bit more. And then I worked on fleshing out more of an outline for the second book. And I started to do some thinking about just strategic brand planning. What do I want my career to look like? One of the books I absolutely love, but it's more contemporary with a hint of magic, whereas the other book is ultimately the book that's going to be my second book, and it was much more in line with The Wolf's Curse. And so I, I had a pretty strong feeling that was going to be the book they were going to want. So I put a lot of time into fleshing that idea out. And then it was maybe around December that I sent the idea to my agent, to Sarah, and she forwarded on to Martha. And then it wasn't until the beginning of May of this year, I take that back, it was end of March, beginning of April of this year that I heard back from Martha and she said, I want this book, the second book, the one I thought that she would choose, the one that's much more in line with the wolf's curse. She said, but we want to publish it fall of 2022 because then it's a, exactly a year out from the wolf's curse. That means that I need your first draft by the end of May. Can you pull that off? So that was essentially eight-ish weeks that I had from the idea, getting the idea approved by my editor to writing the full manuscript. So that that was pretty wild. And, you know, we're still in the heart of COVID. My focus is still not good. So I had been, like I said, picking away at that story. So I, I felt pretty good that I could pull it off. But it was a really, really intense eight weeks. Well, there's no... 
sudden calm in there. There's like, hey, even if I don't pull this off, I'm getting paid. The contract says. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. For me, it was really just about, you know, wanting to get the story out there and wanting to make it the best story that I could make it. Again, focusing on craft. Let's talk just a little bit about being paid uh, as, as delicately as I can without 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 becoming crass. Uh, but mm-hmm. that is something I know that every author is not every author, but a lot of authors are are hoping that's oh my god that's the day I'm putting my day job goodbye the moment I sign that contract uh, six figures that sounds wonderful does the, does a truck pull up to the house and they just <laughs> The front lawn. That's exactly what happens. Without without getting into your personal finances, what can you tell us about what to expect when that happens? Sure. Um, I'm trying to recall the exact details of the contract. I believe that it called for 50% to be paid out upon signing of the contract. So that would be 50% of the first book. So within maybe a month of signing the contract, a direct deposit was made into my account of 50%. And then I received this. No, actually, I think it was 50% of both books were paid out upon signing the contract. I'm fairly certain that I got a complete payment. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got I got the payment for the second book when I turned in my I think it was somewhere in between developmental edits and copy edits. So that was close to six months later, I guess, or maybe even closer to a year later. I lose track of time. But in any case, you have to turn in a manuscript before you get your full payment for the book. And then the last payment is going to be made probably in the next few months when I turn in a edited manuscript for book two. So for me, I think it was supposed to have been paid out in four chunks, but because when I signed the contract and the first book was due with such a short time frame, I think they ended up paying it out in one chunk. But I will say I am really lucky that there was only three or four payments because I think right now with COVID, a lot of contracts are calling for maybe three, four or five payments spread over quite some time. So I don't know if that was Sarah working her magic. Like I said, I just let her do her thing. I have no idea if that's what they originally proposed or if that's what she negotiated for me. But when you have Sarah Crow in your corner, you don't really need to sweat those kind of details because she just makes it all happen. So in uh, Sarah Crow, uh, Martha Mahalik, I think I'm saying that Mahalik, Mahalik? I'm not sure, actually. I've only spoken with her once on the phone. We do all of our communication by email. So I need to figure that out. If you're listening, Martha M., uh, you are <laughs> show, Sarah Crow. You're welcome on the show. Please come on. I have, I have so many questions for both of you. Um, one more, one more in the weeds questions about money, and we'll move on to editing. Um, but uh, when that money hits the account, obviously, I'm assuming that's minus the percentage that goes to your agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't take any taxes out of that, right? You got to save that back for when the tax bill comes at the end of the year. That's right. So. Normally, you have the amount that is set to be paid out by your contract, and that amount goes directly to your agent. They take their commission, and then they send you the rest. 
because you're an independent contractor, you probably need to look at paying quarterly taxes. Now, my situation is even more complicated than that because I'm an American expat living in Canada. So I have to deal with the differences between Canadian tax law and US tax law. So we don't have to get into all of that, but yes, the, the agent does take their commission out of that. So when you think about even a really big book deal and you start dividing it out into getting paid out over multiple years, and then the agent taking their commission and then needing to pay up to, in some cases, you know, 40-ish percent in taxes, that really pretty big number can end up being really a pretty small number at the end of the day. So, um, you know, it's certainly something I'm grateful for, but no, it's not like airplanes were flying overhead, just dropping bags of cash into my yard. Ah, and then I know that you uh, reached out to Book Forward Publicity. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they're the ones that booked you on this week gig, uh, yeah. as, as I'm assuming many other uh, fine deals. Uh, and some of that comes out of the, the advance as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so with, with Book Forward, uh, how has your experience been working with them and, and, and having somebody uh, get involved and in, in do publicity for you? For me, it has been really a blessing because my timelines have been so tight. We obviously had to turn in Wolf really, really quickly to get it published within, I think, you know, we published within 16 months of, of getting the book deal. So that's really, really fast in the book world. And then wanting to put out book two. So right now, my book two was due at the end of May, and it has to go into copy edits by fall. So that means I have this summer to do developmental edits, one or two rounds of those, plus get it into copy edits. So doing all of that, plus trying to market the Wolf's Curse is super overwhelming and having a PR firm behind me that is doing all the research in terms of who do we want to reach out to and then actually doing the legwork reaching out and just telling me when I need to show up and where I need to show up has been just really taken an enormous amount of pressure off. And then also in terms of the marketing materials, I do have an MBA and I did emphasize marketing, but I don't have any real practical experience in that area. And I certainly don't have any experience with press kits for books and being an author and just having somebody walk me through what that's going to look like and what kinds of questions and what kind of information needs to be on there has been extraordinarily helpful. Well, uh, the good news is uh, that before magic in the middle really takes off uh, and, and blows me out of the water, this is the, the biggest show in, in the world for, for middle grade. So you've, you've made it. I have arrived. <laughs> Uh, and then I noticed, I've, I've watched our time, I see it, it's gone away, so it's, it's probably time to start thinking about land on this thing, but I, I do appreciate you you being so generous with your time this evening. But I wanted to ask about editing, because I saw there were a number of names uh, in addition to uh, Martha Mihalik, uh, Mihalik, Mihalik. We'll, we'll figure it out, Martha M., when you come on the show. <laughs> uh, but um, so there's a number of, of, of editors' names, and then there's also a freelance copy editor, so how many editors get involved in this thing? And, and are some of those people from before you ever get to, to, to Aaron Andrada Kelly? Or uh, where, how, how does all that editing work? Yeah. So the acknowledgments were really, really hard for me because, of course, I wanted to thank anybody who's ever read for me and giving me feedback over the years, but I would have needed an entire novel to do that. So I really tried to narrow it down to the people who worked on primarily on this novel with me. So I have a large group of 
uh, my book group that I meet with monthly and they wanted to read the story and they gave me some feedback. So I felt like I wanted to acknowledge all of them. And then I have some beta readers and critique partners that I trade um, sometimes monthly and sometimes we trade entire stories. So it was important to me to thank them. And then there are a few other names on there of people that were just really pivotal in my life, like Shriki Marau, the professor I talked about, Early on in my career, when I was writing that memoir, I had hired a freelance editor to just teach me some basics. I didn't know what the difference was between author voice and character voice. And so she walked me through some of those basics and made a really big difference. I can still sometimes hear her editing in my head when I write. So I wanted to thank a few of those people. But in terms of The Wolf's Curse, it really came down to a few very close critique partners and beta readers, and then my book group that read at the end. And then it was just Sarah offering her feedback, and then Martha's really uh, super brilliant developmental edits. And then within the Green Willow team, there is uh, another editor that sort of does the day-to-day. Martha does the big picture editing and then there's a managing editor and she's the one who handles making sure all of the copy edits get folded in and they hire a copy editor separately from that. So there are several hands in the pot and there's a lot of people that um, that all contribute to getting a book out into the world. It's been really interesting to sort of see all of that unfold. Well, you're going to have very long uh, speeches to give once you start winning all the awards. (laughs) I hope I have that problem. Ah, Jessica Vitalis, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Well, I cannot say that I've ever seen a flying saucer, but I do have a very interesting ghost story. Go on. Before I moved to Canada, we lived in Atlanta, Georgia, specifically in Decatur, a very small sort of town within the city limits of Atlanta. And we lived in a hundred year old bungalow that was sort of one of those delightful bungalows that has all the little nooks and crannies and crevices that you would expect in a hundred year old bungalow and the stained glass windows and nothing untoward had ever happened that I had seen. Nothing had ever made me uncomfortable in that bungalow until we were getting ready to move to Canada. I think maybe it was even when my husband flew up here to interview. I was alone in the bedroom, sound asleep in the middle of the night, and I startled awake and there was a young woman standing beside my bed in a white floor-length lace nightgown. And I could see her very, very clearly. And I didn't have the sense that she wanted to hurt me, but I was terrified because the sense of somebody else being in the room with me was so real. Like I felt like I could reach out and touch this person standing next to my bed. And I was genuinely absolutely terrified, so scared that I turned on the light and I couldn't sleep for the rest of the night. And that feeling when you're really scared of something stayed with me for several weeks, that feeling of this person was in my house. And it and it didn't last long. It only lasted long enough for me to reach over and turn on the light. But I always look back on that and I'm like, was I just in that twilight place in between dreaming and being awake? But even dreams don't usually have quite that intensity to them. So I don't know, maybe it was a ghost, maybe it was just a dreamlike state, but it was a really, really intense experience. So having had that experience, do you live in fear of it happening again, or does it give you some kind of um, comfort in knowing that, oh, clearly death is not the end. Uh, I hope I'm having a better experience than, than hanging out, scaring people at the, at the third <laughs> <laughs> there might be something beyond that could be doing. You know, I 
I was uncomfortable in that bedroom for some time afterward, but it really hasn't bothered me since. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was something connected to that house. I live in a much newer house now, and I don't know what the history of that house was, but maybe that was something, some energy connected to that house. I don't know. Well, there's a home buyer's tip that I feel that they should put on, uh, on <laughs> train realtors. Buy newer properties, less likely to be haunted. <laughs> Isn't there some law? I don't know if it's every state, but I know I've lived in at least one state where it's a law that you have to disclose if somebody died in the house. Have you ever heard that before? There, I know that that's the premise of several uh, books and, and TV shows. There are a couple of states with that law. Uh, I know it's not here in Indiana because I bought my house uh, and then afterward find out who died here. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I guess not. <laughs> Interesting. Seems like I should have Googled that up front, although we, we haven't had any, uh, knock on wood, we haven't had any paranormal experiences, so. Interesting. <laughs> It could still happen. You never know. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, sooner or later, I've got to write another horror novel, and I'm always looking for ideas. So you know, <laughs> it, it might not, not go wasted. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I do I do think maybe someday I'll write a ghost story. We'll see. We'll see. Have you got a, a candy craving for one? Maybe a little bit. Is that going to be that second companion novel, the, the title of which is? Not going to happen. <laughs> that was a nice try, though. I will give you one little little nugget. I will say the world building is completely different than The Wolf's Curse, but exactly the same sort of world building. So very unique setting, very in-depth world building, same sort of magical feel, but the exact opposite. And the, release, the anticipated release date where a Steve audience will be able to mark it on their calendar is... Fall of 2022. We won't have an exact date until later this year. Fair enough. Uh, so everyone should be checking out your social media, your website to be keeping tabs for when that announcement's going to drop. Absolutely. If they wanted to do that, where would they go? They can find me on Twitter at Jessica Vitalis or on Instagram at Jessica V Author. And then I also have an author page on Facebook with the same name, Jessica V Author. And then you can find me and Magic in the Middle at www.jessicavitalis.com. Jessica, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I so appreciate you. You make it time. I've got one last question. Uh, sure. We'll follow we'll tonight. My last, uh, but, but thank you. Uh, again, for making time for being such a, a wonderful guest. Uh, my last question is always some variation of if you could go back 13 years ago, the start of your career, the middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful uh, and give yourself some advice other than watch out where you're sleeping. Um, <laughs> the ghost come around. Give yourself some advice uh, about writing that maybe would have made your uh, path easier. It might make it easier the path of all those watching or listening to us right now. What would mm -hmm. you go back and tell yourself? I think I would try to teach myself that readers don't care about the plot. The plot is something that carries the character along, but readers really fall in love with characters. And so the more time you invest in helping the readers to care about your characters, the more emotional impact your book is going to have. And that took me a long time to learn. So that's something I wish I had figured out a whole lot earlier. There we have it. 
Uh, Steve's audience has always head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with uh, Aaron Andrade Kelly. Uh, plus, hopefully, uh, eventually, uh, Sarah Crow and uh, and Martha M. And, and all kinds of other wonderful people. Every Everybody that's fantastic in publishing, anybody who's anybody, has been at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Manica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.